The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop fiddling with your, uh, um, well, just listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 509 with guest Eric Lawrence, recorded live Tuesday, December 1st, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who recently learned he should never sprinkle catnip on a waterbed. Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's the Carl Meister and the Richard Nader here with you for the next hour or so. What's up, buddy? Not much, my friend. Had an uh, interesting uh, night with the band last night. Real quick before we get into Better No Framework. Uh, Foxwoods Casino is having a contest to see what local bands can come up with the next version of their theme song. So there's a whole bunch of local bands. People I know, you know, have submitted MP3 files up there. So I got together the band and my uh, keyboard player in my band, Frank, not Franklin Brothers, uh, came up with this great progression and we got a good groove and uh, we got a good shot. Nice. We got a good shot at it. So... Uh, more on that, as if anything happens, I'll certainly let you know. Let's get into a little segment we call Better Know Framework. Right now, awesome. on the show, just because, because we can, I think, get into the framework. It's my Christopher Walken for you this morning. So, <laughs> so in .NET 4.0, we have support for complex numbers. Okay. Now, if you don't know what a complex number is, you don't need it. Cause nice. You, you pretty much, that's it. Uh, so uh, the remarks are, and a complex number is a number that is comprised of a real number and an imaginary number. Yeah. That was what would make it complex. Yeah. So a complex number Z is usually written in the form Z equals X plus Y I, where X and Y are real numbers and I is the imaginary unit that has the property... Uh, I squared equals minus one. So d if you know what I'm talking about, great. If you don't, c join the club because I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but if you need complex numbers, uh, I guess I didn't get that far in math in in uh, in school. 
Do you know what complex number? Have you used complex numbers? You I must have, have. Indeed, it's uh, it's one of the things you need to use when complex when computing fractals. And I've done a bunch of fractal work, so it's an unavoidable part of some aspects of algebra. Well, it is interesting that if you go to Wikipedia and look up complex number, there's a picture of the Mandelbrot set. There right. it is the the fractal. Yeah. So. Yeah, calculus gave me enough of a headache. I don't need imaginary numbers to go and complicate things for me. But there you go. Complex numbers. Oh, and by the way, it's in uh, system.numerics. There's a complex structure. Nice. So there you go. That's it. That's better no framework for today. That's cool. And that's part of the new framework, 4.0. .NET 4.0. All right. Coming out in March. So who's talking to us, Richard? I've got an email here uh, from Carl Howard out of New Zealand, out of my home country. Yeah, okay. Uh, talking about identity. We've been talking a lot about identity lately. Uh, we have been talking a lot about identity. We're I just think, trying uh, to figure this stuff out. That's, that's all. That's it, and try to get it right. Right. Uh, Carl and Richard, I've been a regular listener to your show for the past five years, and I've loved every one of them. Good. But I really have to pay homage to shows 495 and 486 regarding identity slash whiff slash Geneva. What I think made these really great was your challenging of both Vittorio and Michelle to see the other side of identity, by which I mean the administrative side of the application. Hmm. Yes, the development side of checking claims seems straightforward, and the administrative side of setting up an identity provider and federation seems straightforward, but both of these won't work in isolation. What does Vittorio mean when he says, don't worry about claims changing? That's fine if you have control over both ends, which may be possible in an enterprise, but if you're an ISV, then no two installations will be the same. For example, if a menu item is restricted to HR staff and one company has a claim for the group HR and another has the claim to the group personnel, does this mean that I have to have different compilations for the application as suggested by Vittorio? I hope not. I guess we can ensure unique claims by using a My Application HR group in the code and enforcing the identity provider to have these specific claims created. But if there is a lot of claims for our application, does the administrator create these manually? Another option would be to have a configuration for mapping the identity claims to the secured points in the application, but isn't the point to extract the need for administration users to perform administration in each separate application? As usual, your shows have expanded my knowledge and tweaked my interests so that I'll have to follow them up with my own research. Hmm. Keep up the great work. And congratulations on the grand milestone of Show 500, Carl Howard from Fujitsu, New Zealand. Fujitsu is a town in New Zealand? And Fujitsu is a company in New Zealand, I guess. Oh, Fujitsu. In yeah. A, he's yeah. actually in Auckland. Which I was going like to say, a, it's a very, very Japanese-sounding town. <laughs> I wonder when the Japanese settled in New Zealand, actually. Might be a few there. Carl, thanks so much for your email. And, uh, you know, I agree with a lot of your concerns. There certainly was one of the things I was pushing on was this idea of how do we map our current security configuration to an application? You know, what's that client going to look like? And I haven't gotten an answer that made me real happy yet, which is why we keep gnawing on the problem. Well, I think Christian Wire came uh, and Dominic Bayer actually came close in show 503. Yes. They gave us a good reason to go to WIF, which is just to consolidate all of uh, all of the different ways that you can uh, provide security in an application under one roof. Yeah, certainly from the development perspective, that element of WIF was really compelling. So yeah. 
Uh, I thought they did a, did a good job there too. But the administrative side is an interesting challenge, and we're still looking for the right answers. I might have to go chase that around on Run As Radio and talk to more administrators that are dealing with claims based security apps. It's a great idea, Richard. And what is that show you just mentioned? Run As Radio. What is that? Yeah, you ever heard of that? Run As Radio. I've done <laughs> 137 shows now, so we do a half hour once a week talking to IT pros about Microsoft technology. So I put on my other hat, you know, that little bipolar nature of me and and yeah, head over there and, and focus on those kinds of topics. As long as we're cross-promoting, uh, at the PDC, I ran into Adam Kogan, who did a two-part DNR TV series on, uh, on TFS in Visual Studio 2010, which is a must-see. It's not only great for the technical parts of it, but he goes into the whole process of developing software for a client all the way from uh, a pr- the proposal to the finished product. So it's great stuff. DNRTV.com. If you have a .NET story to tell, an application that you've built that's successful, and uh, you want to share that with the world, go to my.netstory.com. This is a Microsoft contest. You tell your story, and uh, the applications are judged. And when is the contest over? It's coming up here pretty soon. It ends December 31st, so you only have about a week left. Yeah. So uh, then the... the uh, the applications and the stories will be judged, and the winner gets a trip to the Galapagos Islands or a smart car. Take the trip. <laughs> <laughs> and there are runner-up prizes as well. That's so go right. to com and submit your app. And I heard I know one of the judges. Yeah. Maybe I'm, two of the judges. I'm one of the judges. There you go. Yeah. I am. All right. Let's introduce Eric Lawrence. Eric is a program manager on the Internet Explorer team responsible for security and networking features. He recently spoke at PDC 2009, Use Nix Security 2009, Mix 2009, Hack in the Box 2008, which I want to go to just for fun. Because the name's so good. It's a great name. And O'Reilly's Velocity Conference. Eric is best known as a developer of the Fiddler web debugging platform used by security and web professionals worldwide. He also releases a variety of freeware at uh, www.baden.com, B-A-Y-D-E-N.com. His IE internals blog can be found at blogs.msdn.com slash IE internals. Welcome to .NET Rocks, Eric. Hi, guys. You know, long back in the day when I was writing a book on this thing they call the Internet and programming it, I used to have this little tool that I wrote that would accept a, a connection on port 80 and take everything that the browser sent to it and spit it out as a text file or just in a text box. And you could uh, send back a reply, too, and see what happened on the way back. And, man, I could have really used Fiddler back then. You know, when we that's all we had to do is write those tools ourselves. That's all we could do. So tell us about Fiddler a little bit. Well, basically, you know, I started out this, the same place. You know, we needed to uh, monitor some traffic between the office client and some office web services. And at the time, the way that the uh, developers were doing it was essentially, you know, hovering over the uh, the tooltip data view in uh, a breakpoint in Visual Studio and, you know, trying to hex decode the HTTP requests in yeah. their heads. And, you know, it just seemed like there must be a better way. And so, you know, the first thing I did was I took a existing proxy server and I did, you know, kind of what you did. I, I converted it so that it would echo everything out to the, the command line, and we'd take a look on the command line, but, you know, obviously that's pretty unmanageable for any sort of real uh, real use, because you've got, you know, hundreds of requests that are spewing thousands of lines in the console, and so right. from there, I evolved it over time, and, 
at the time that I started writing it, I hadn't written anything in .NET before. I didn't know C Sharp, and I wasn't also familiar with uh, uh, HTTP protocol. And so basically, you know, I started out with a book on HTTP, a book on C Sharp, and mm. uh, six years, 51 builds, and, you know, <laughs> quite a few thousand lines of source code later, we yeah. have uh, Fiddler. And, uh, you know, basically the idea is to, to help people out who are uh, trying to solve the same sorts of problems and a lot of other yeah. problems that have come up since then. See what's going on traffic-wise. It's I can imagine it's very helpful when trying to figure out what's going on when you're calling services, RESTful services or any service that goes over port 80. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, I would say that most people are probably using it for uh, browser debugging stuff, but I think in some respects, it's even better for the the web service debugging stuff. Um, Over the weekend, I was playing around, so I have some bespoke blog software that I wrote um, just because, you know, the millions of available variants weren't good enough. So I I wrote my own really (laughs) terrible blog software, and I was getting some grief from a friend that it didn't uh, support Windows Live Writer. And so I took a look at it, and Windows Live Writer supports a bunch of different uh, blogging APIs, but they also have the, the meta blog uh, API support, which seemed pretty simple. And so I went to support Metablog on uh, on my blog site, and uh, obviously my initial implementation was rather buggy, but using Fiddler is pretty easy to, you know, see where my traffic differed from uh, that of a legitimate service like uh, MSDN blogs and, you know, pretty easily tune and, and change the traffic to uh, what it needed to be and then, you know, fix up the server-side implementation to make it work. So, yeah, I mean, for, for .NET and, you know, any other sort of web service, it's it's a very useful thing to have. Well, and, and it feels like it spawned a whole bunch of follow-on. It was the first tool I ever ran across that actually worked with IE. The you know in the early days, would, and by early means I mean like four or five years ago. Really, we had Fiddler on IE and uh, Firebug on Firefox, and that was it. Now there's there's tons of visualization tools for the browser. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, certainly with Fiddler, it's 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 a very interesting problem because uh, you know when I had started, I, I wasn't aware of anything like Fiddler. The closest thing I knew about was this tool called Achilles, and Achilles was a web proxy that would handle one request at a time. And Achilles was really designed for security pen testing, but it was extremely primitive, and you know it was manual configuration. It was a ton of work to get anything going. And so, you know, I looked around, I spent a fair amount of time looking, didn't see anything, and I kind of started on the early versions of Fiddler. And the nice thing actually was there was a bit of a progressive discovery period because after I'd been revving on Fiddler for a couple of months, I'd come across something that was, you know, sort of in the same area and did something better than Fiddler did. And it was like, wow, you know, I, if I didn't know about this, I wouldn't write Fiddler to begin with. But, you know, I'm only discovering it now. I've invested, you know, hundreds of hours of work in it. I can, I can make this a little better to, to, you know, accommodate or, you know, be as good as that other tool. And that, that continued to happen for a period of probably three years where I was just progressively discovering more tools that had some functionality that Fiddler didn't have but could have. And so I basically, you know, enhanced the functionality and tried to make it better and better. And today, you know, there's a ton of different tools that are are much like Fiddler, but the vast majority of them are either written to target a particular piece of software. So they only work in one browser or they only work with one client. Right. Or they're written in Java. And, you know, the Java applications uh, have some benefits. You can Mm. run them on Mac and so forth. But very often they don't look like Windows apps. They don't feel like Windows apps. And for someone who's accustomed to the Windows platform, they feel sort of alien. And very often, they require manual configuration of the browser and other annoyances. And so, you know, the point about Fiddler is making it really easy to use. So one of the cool features is that anytime there's some sort of violation of the HTTP protocol, you can uh, you can show that. You can show that there's a... Uh, is that really a problem these days if you're 
uh, where is that a problem? I guess it's a problem on the client. I mean, the servers are baked and they're they're fine, and I wouldn't expect HTTP errors in the protocol. But I guess is this when you're doing sort of um, you're doing some AJAX calls or calling some REST services or doing that kind of stuff in JavaScript where you where you end up with those things. Uh, most often, actually, the times that you'll see them is is basically the HTTP protocol violation is an indication that something else has gone horribly wrong. And so there's there's some minor ones. For instance, that probably the noisiest one is complaining that the server is sending uh, just just uh, line feeds rather than carriage return line feed as as dictated by oh. the the RFC. And so it kind of whines about that. So Amazon, for instance, is notorious for doing this. Um, and and so it's it's pretty noisy. But the most common thing is isn't that a typical Unix thing, though? Lo- only line feeds instead of carriage return line feeds. Yeah, it's 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 a historical legacy of out of how, how Unix works, and it's yeah. you know specifically addressed in the RFC that you know hey you should be using carriage return line feed, but it's acceptable to just use one or the other. Because we should make the internet work like a typewriter. Yeah, carriage return. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, one of the, you know most of the most of the warnings are things like hey you know the server you know failed to send headers or something like that which is usually an indication that the server is actually not um, really sending traffic that conforms to the HTTP spec so for mm. instance maybe it sent the previous response that was too long and it's reusing the socket mm. um, and and actually it's really interesting because you find some very surprising behaviors. So, for instance, you know, a few years ago, and I haven't, I haven't been back to Yahoo Groups recently, but a very few years ago, you would surf around the Yahoo Groups site, and you would very quickly see that actually some of their image servers were just returning raw image bytes. They weren't returning any headers at all. Wow. So t- technically, this is, you know, HTTP 0.9. Yeah, right. Uh, which actually causes lots of problems, for instance, because you can't cache such a resource because there's no headers that would allow for caching and so forth. And so you occasionally encounter those types of surprises. Um, and then sometimes you'll encounter other surprises where, you know, someone has written their own HTTP server because, hey, HTTP is really easy, right? So let me just write my own. And you'll find that they made some incorrect assumptions about things. And, you know, it turns out that browser software tends to be very, very tolerant. So Internet Explorer, for instance, uh, you can return an HTTP response that starts out, I am not an HTTP response, dot, 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 HTTP slash 11, you know, 200 OK. Mm. And Internet Explorer will just read that fine and say, oh, you know, I, I just skip up to the HTTP 11 and say, OK, the response starts here. Whereas if you were to feed that type of content to another browser with a different HTTP stack, it may actually complain and say, you know, hey, this, this response didn't actually start properly and it'll reject the request. And so it's very useful from a standards compliance perspective to actually know whether the server is doing something illegal because that can flush out errors in the clients. Mm. Well, and often I've run into circumstances where uh, a server is barfing an error message and the browser's just not reading it. And it's not until you get into Fiddler that you even see it. Yep. And you actually Def- see that low-level stream. Definitely, there's there's cases where if you have like a subframe that's got an error, or maybe it's an image request or a resource request, you won't see the error message. And then also there's the the helpful uh, in quotes setting in Internet Explorer to always show friendly error messages. And basically, what that does is it says if the server returns an error and the body of the error is less than 512 bytes, it'll just show you a a friendly error page, which is meant for normal human consumption. Well, unfortunately, it makes it very difficult for web developers to debug things because you know, the, the exception with the stack trace may well be, you know, 200 bytes long uh, if you've written your own custom error page and not relying on ASP.NETs or, or whatever your, your server-side framework. And so Fiddler makes those things much more obvious. 
One thing, another thing I noticed is that uh, you're using, you can use IP6. And um, what does that mean to the developer? I mean, you're obviously using sockets down at mm-hmm. the level where you're at. What does that mean to the developer who's using sockets as you to use IP6? Is it just a matter of the uh, the endpoint is a different endpoint class, or is it the same uh, same endpoint class? Is there is there any difference in the code? In other words. Well, I mean, the major thing that you run into differences is when someone has a server that's only responding on an IPv4 endpoint rather than both IPv4 and IPv6. So in Windows Vista and above, they've enabled IPv6 by default. And so, for instance, if you do a DNS query for localhost, um, you'll get back two entries. You'll right. get back colon colon one, which is the IPv6 loopback adapter, mm-hmm. and you'll get 127.0.0.1. And for most cases, this is completely transparent and independent and doesn't really matter what you use. But the problem is, is that some software binds to only one or the, and not the other. Right, right. And so in particular, the Cassini web server, the sample web server that's used for debugging uh, your ASP.NET projects, will only listen on the IPv4 adapter. Yeah. And so if you attempt to connect to, you know, the, the random port on, on the IPv6, uh, it'll actually fail and time out. And so basically the... Um, you know, that's the con- one consideration to be aware of is you, you have to be concerned that if you're going to uh, uh, properly support IPv6, you, you need to be listening on that port. And then for a client, essentially, or sorry, on that endpoint. And for a client, you know, you need to be aware that, hey, uh, the service may not be available on the IPv6 endpoint, and you need to try and fall back on the IPv4 endpoint uh, if the, the attempt to connect to the IPv6 endpoint uh, fails. There's no real difference in for you as a programmer, sockets wise, uh, no, whether not. you whether you bind to an IP6 or an IP4 endpoint. The framework looks the same. Yeah, generally, I mean, there's yeah. a couple of flags that will allow you to control, for instance, uh, which which uh, endpoint you uh, you'll connect yeah. to. And if you use, for instance, legacy DNS APIs, yeah, uh, unless you set like an app config thing, uh, you'll only get the IPv4 endpoints, and so. Yeah, the current, you know, if you're using the current recommended DNS APIs in the framework, it'll actually return both the IPv6 and the IPv4 endpoints. But, you know, beyond those few quirks, uh, that, that, you know, the IPv6 support was actually a very minor uh, amount of work. That's cool. Um, also using HTTPS. Yep. Now, now that's, that's got to be kind of a pain for you at the sockets level. Yeah, well, it's it's actually uh, it was it was extremely difficult until uh, .NET 2.0. So prior to .NET 2.0, essentially the only HTTPS support in Fiddler was it would show you the connect tunnels. And so when you've got a client that's trying to connect to a secure server, and it knows there's a proxy in the way, it essentially has to say, "Hey proxy, please make me you know a buffer, uh, an unbuffered byte stream between the client and the server, and I'm just going to send encrypted bytes down it, and you'll you know pass those bytes to the server, and the server will return some bytes." Yeah. And uh, you need to go those back to me. And so it's different than a normal proxy situation because in a normal proxy situation, the proxy actually evaluates the messages and returns the response. Right. Well, you know, the whole point of the SSL protocol, one of them is to ensure that a man in the middle can't see or modify the traffic. And so exactly. basically, um, it's kind of a blind tunnel that was available in Fiddler. And so prior to .NET 2.0, what I had to do was I wrote an Internet Explorer plugin that would actually... Um, send out the raw traffic to Fiddler via Windows messages. And so, you know, Fiddler would use the normal blind proxy, but it would get these helpful messages from this tool called RPA Spy. And RPA Spy would say, hey, here's the headers of the requests and responses. Oh, man. It was using an interface in IE. The problem is that didn't work for any other client, and it didn't work, uh, you know, it wouldn't return bodies and so forth. And it was was really a problematic thing. It was read-only and so forth. 
Well, in .NET 2.0, they introduced what's called the SSL stream class. And the SSL stream class essentially allows you to, you know, pass bytes down a, a TCP IP socket, and it'll handle the SSL stuff for you. And so you can very easily implement um, SSL using the SSL stream class. In fact, most of the work inside Fiddler is around the fact that uh, Fiddler, as a proxy, you know, ordinarily isn't going to be able to see the traffic or modify the traffic in these, in these secure tunnels, but obviously the point of Fiddler is to be able to see and modify the traffic. Right. And so what Fiddler has to do, essentially, is execute a local man-in-the-middle attack against the traffic. And so yeah. it generates its own certificate uh, and basically gives that to the client and says, hey, I'm the server. And the client, by default, isn't going to trust it and say, no, you're not. You're not, trusted by a tr- you're not signed by a trusted root CA. Uh, but Fiddler makes its own CA available to trust if you really want to. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the new TFS Work Item Manager and TFS Project Dashboard. So if you're spending a lot of time on organizing the cluttered pile of work items in TFS, get ready for a fresh and intuitive experience. The guys at Telerik just launched the TFS Work Item Manager and Project Dashboard, a couple of free tools designed to make working with Team Foundation Server faster and easier. Unlike the standard TFS Explorer, the Work Item Manager lets you take advantage of powerful capabilities like filtering, as-you-type search, grouping and aggregation, and iteration scheduling. You can even see all the work items in a Scrum dashboard view, as if watching the whiteboard in your own room. Project Dashboard is a unique tool for visualizing TFS data. Useful for both developers and project managers, it helps you keep track of the latest TFS project activity like current iteration progress, build history, recent check-ins, assigned tasks and bug history, and to understand the health of the project as a whole. The TFS tools are brought to you by Telerik and Imaginet, the experts in application lifecycle management. Built with RAD controls for WPF, they're both amazingly flexible and responsive. Go to Telerik.com and download the TFS tools for free. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Now, these might be words that most developers haven't heard in a while. Root CA, Certificate Authority. Uh, sorry, Roots, Root Certificate Authority. So yeah. basically the guys, VeriSign et al., who uh, have the, the root certificates that are used to sign the chain of trust used in SSL. Yeah. And so basically in order to uh, see traffic uh, without error messages about, you know, an interception certificate, you need to trust the Fiddler root CA. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's generated on a per-machine basis. So if I have it on my machine, you can't, you know, generate it on your machine and somehow spoof me. That's one of those things we call Richard for. That's uh, in the realm of IT. <laughs> you know, it's funny to, how much uh, listening to you, Eric, talk about the, the things you were using Fiddler for. Mostly it's about finding people violating the rules of of uh, HTTP and, and the RFCs of the Internet in general. Yeah, it kind of depends on what people are doing. I mean, for me, it's interesting, right, because I work on the networking stack in Internet Explorer. And so if we encounter a site that's having a problem, we need to understand pretty deeply, you know, what's going on and make sure that there's no, you know, helper code somewhere that's ignoring errors or trying to recover for problems. Right. But certainly there's a, a wide variety of people that use Fiddler for, you know, many things. So Fiddler's currently getting somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 downloads a day. Nice. I'm pretty sure there's not that many people that really need a deep insight into TCP IP or HTTP. And I suspect that actually most of what the people downloading Fiddler are doing is they're just looking in the session list for anything red that's a 404 and saying, oh, we're missing a file. Go put that on the server. Yeah. Um, 
because you know basically in order to get that kind of download numbers, you need a fairly uh, a fairly broad user base, including lots of non-technical folks. And so I think that that's what's going on. But certainly there's a lot of people that use Fiddler for things like penetration testing and security analysis and performance analysis and lots of little niches that uh, are pretty common in, in development today. Now, you did a session at PDC on using Fiddler uh, to yep. debug with. Yeah, so I did it uh, last week and, uh, you know, it was great. I had a, had a nice packed audience and, you know, I asked the question at the beginning, hey, how many of you used Fiddler? Figuring maybe half and virtually everybody raised their hands. And wow. That was, that was really cool. Uh, about halfway through, I was showing off some of the, the request and response modification features and showing how you could change requests and responses and, you know, basically execute a man in the middle attack against yourself and for testing purposes and so forth. And I, you know, I asked again, well, how many people have used the breakpointing features in Fiddler? And out of the 280 people in the room, one person raised their hand. And I was pretty impressed by that because, you know, Fiddler, one of the most basic things it does is allow these types of modifications. And so it's pretty clear that for, for many folks, there's lots of room to grow in terms of the power and, and what you can do with Fiddler. And most of what I've been doing for the past two or three years is actually trying to expose more of the power and making it easier for folks to write inspectors and extensions and so forth that allow uh, less less, you know, Fiddler savvy folks to, to really do very powerful things. We have a script language now, right? Yeah, so Fiddler has uh, it's called Fiddler Script, although basically it's just JavaScript.net, uh, and it allows you to basically interact with both the requests and the responses. And I mostly did this actually because I didn't want to do all the work of creating a UI that would allow filtering and all these other things because it seemed like a lot of work at the time. And it turned out that in uh, in .NET, actually hosting a script engine is trivial; it's about a page of code. And so I did that very early on. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I'm looking at now is the migration to uh, .NET 4.0. And in .NET 4.0, they've retired the legacy ActiveScript interface for, for JavaScript. And so one of the things I'm looking at is a move over to use any of the .NET languages, C-sharp and whatnot, and even maybe the dynamic languages uh, so that you could write, you know, your Ruby script to interact with Fiddler sessions and so forth. And so that'll be a fun project for the next couple of months. Yeah, you've got quite a list of add-ins for Fiddler 2 now. Yeah, and so, you know, add-ins is basically uh, the greatest thing since sliced bread because Fiddler gets more useful and I don't have to do any work. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, that's one of the things that I I realized pretty early on was, you know, I was a time, I was just a guy over in office trying to debug clip art quite seriously. And, you know, uh, over, over That's the right. You were a, a clip art PM at one point in your life. I was the program manager for the clip art site. Dude, you really want us to keep that in the show? Because we can edit that out. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, man. I loved, I loved that job. We had a million downloads a day of clip art. We had, you know, everybody from all walks of life that was trying to get clip art for their, their office documents. And, you know, we, we really delighted them, honestly. I think that of the uh, Microsoft products, you know, we had we had a tremendously loyal and, and active user base. People would just go download and see what was new. It was great fun. Wow, but, I have a new respect know, for clip art now. Ultimately, uh, you know, I got actually pretty extremely frustrated because I was trying to build this website that you know just you know a fairly high traffic website, but nothing particularly special about it. And, you know, we kept running into all these problems where the performance wasn't what it should be, and you know, one of the actual things that led to a lot of the features in Fiddler, honestly, was we had this feature called the clip of the day. And every day we would change to a new piece of clip art. And knowing about performance, we wanted to make sure that that piece of clip art cached for the whole day, but changed, you know, promptly the next morning so that everybody right. would get a new piece of clip art every day. And man, if 
for nine months, we always had somebody writing in saying, hey, the clip didn't change today. What's going on? And it turned out that uh, Internet Explorer's networking stack had quite a few bugs that would you know, do illegal caching and cache things for too long and just not respect cache directives and so forth. And so uh, eventually I ended up joining the IE team figuring, hey, I'll get the source code and figure these things out. <laughs> uh, one of the first things I did was I printed all the source code for the network stack for, for IE. And at the time I was single. And so I read it at night before bed. And, uh, <laughs> basically, uh, you know, I got the, the five bugs that were contributing to our clip art problems fixed. And at the time, my, my boss, you know, heard about this, and he's like, so you're going to leave now that you fixed your bugs? And I'm like, come on, man. I read all the source code. I found a lot more on the way. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that was the, the story of uh, IE7, actually. I was the networking PM there, and I, I got to fix a ton of bugs in the network stack. Uh, not myself. I was a program manager, so I got to help direct uh, fixes for the network stack. Um, but, you know, you know, coming back to the add-on story, one of the things that became apparent pretty quickly was that there were a lot of people that had the need for a network debugger, and they had a lot of different needs. And so whether it was the security team that wanted to do some penetration testing or the performance team trying to figure out why isn't my site fast, you know, we really wanted to get um, a lot of the, the, those scenarios better dealt with because, you know, one of the main things was we always had Netmon. You could always look at the traffic at an extremely low level, but people wouldn't because the cognitive load on doing so yeah. was just so high. You know, yeah, it's so, just boggling to look at raw network traffic. Yeah, you yeah. can't do anything with that. And new, new versions of Netmon are way better, but at the time you couldn't even filter by process and it was, it was a ton of work. And so, you know, one of the things, and, and another great lesson actually was a uh, friend, Steve Souders over Yahoo and now Google, uh, he did this thing called, called YSlow. Yeah, we were just going to, I was just going to mention YSlow. Yeah, and YSlow is unbelievably brilliant. And I, YSlow isn't unbelievably brilliant just because of, you know, kind of the, the technical underpinnings, which are interesting, but not terribly great. What, in my opinion, is just brilliant about YSlow is it takes a very complicated topic and it boils it down to very, very simple practices and guidelines that help you make your site faster. And Steve did a fantastic job of thinking not only about the technical problem, but also about the psychology problem. How do you represent this? How do you entice people to make these simple changes that are going to make their sites faster? And he did a great job and put together this wonderful add-on. And, you know, I thought, hey, that's, you know, Fiddler right now is kind of giving you, it's giving you tons of information. It's simpler than using Netmon, but it's not able to really provide, here's what you need to do to solve this problem. And so that's why, essentially, there's some really great add-ons now available for Fiddler, uh, both Nexpert and Watcher. So Nexpert is kind of like YSLO, and it gives you performance evaluations and tells you, hey, here's how your traffic is going to you know, perform from this foreign locale with these different latencies and so forth. It does uh, response time predictions based on work from Microsoft Research. And then Watcher is a security and analysis plugin. And so basically, you just surf around your website, and it will actually find security risks and vulnerabilities in wow. your site just by looking at the traffic. Wow. No both kidding. Of those, both of those are terribly powerful because you don't need to really even know very much about the problem space. You just kind of look at the report and say, oh, it says I need to go fix this over here. Let me go do that. And that to me is, you know, the ultimate, uh, the goal of Fiddler is to really help people get stuff done. And, you know, well, I think it's interesting to just sort of watch my traffic and see what's going on. For most people, they've got a job they need to get done and uh, Fiddler enables that. That's some great stuff. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the web security tool for, for, by Watcher here because that really goes above and beyond just tw- tinkering with a given site. It's what's going on. 
Yeah, and uh, so the guy that did that, Chris Weber, he runs. A, he was a security. He does security consulting for uh, various companies, and they built that when they were doing tests against uh, Microsoft's platform. And so there's a couple other internal uh, security tools. Unfortunately, some of them are a little too good, and so they're not being released uh, ah. yet. But uh, once once uh, we get to a little more mileage on on fixes and, and encourage some folks to get fixes, hopefully we'll see even more tools come out for for these types of things. And well, uh, yeah, you're hinting at a common problem, I think, in, in this kind line of work, which is that. Like you said, you found bugs in the, in the TCP IP stack. Like a lot of these things are exploits. So every so often you're going to run into something that's, that's really serious. That uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about what to do if you, when you get into yeah, that situation. That's a great idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, so certainly for, for, for bugs that you find on, on Microsoft side, you can just send mail to secure at Microsoft.com and, you know, we'll go investigate uh, vulnerabilities that are found that in that way. And, you know, there's a whole process from the Microsoft Security Response Center about, uh, how this is done. It, you know, it, it turns out actually that, that most of the security bugs that you'll find on the web are really, really boring, right? Either cross-site scripting or cross-site request forgery. Sometimes you'll find some other interesting things, but, um, you know, basically depending on, on where you're looking, you're gonna, you're gonna see different things. But, you know, the client software that stacks themselves, for instance, tend to be pretty good now. And so, um, I wrote a, a fuzzing module for Fiddler, which will fuzz your HTTP traffic and, you know, try and find bugs and clients. What does that mean exactly, fuzz your HTTP traffic? So it'll actually just randomly go mutate parts of your HTTP traffic. So you can surf around the web and it'll actually change parts of your traffic just to see whether, for instance, Firefox's JPEG decoder is going to blow up or, you know, Opera's ping decoder is going to have a problem. And so, you know, basically you can just dynamically change what the client is getting and see how the, the clients respond. And similarly, you could do the same thing for servers. Um, Fiddler isn't really as much of a fuzzing proxy as, as some of the competitive things, like I think Paris proxy or Burp proxy are both uh, security pen test proxies, and they have a lot more native functionality for trying to attack clients and servers. But you can certainly create those modules in Fiddler as well. Great. So well, now we need a couple of, uh, of security exploit modules for Fiddler, and we can take over the world. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I actually... Uh, the, the, some of the craziest things about Fiddler, I, I learn about only sort of um, uh, basically post facto. And so one of the things about Fiddler... What, when uh, the subpoena is, arrives? <laughs> I'm sorry? <laughs> you only find out about it when the subpoena arrives? Yeah, well, not, not so much the subpoena. But one of the things that Fiddler will do is uh, if there's an unhandled ex exception, basically it'll pop a dialogue and say, hey, here's the stack of this exception. You know, go send mail to Eric Lawrence to, to figure out what's going on. And... Uh, I, Basically, a couple of years ago, I started getting uh, stack traces from Fiddler that were running extensions that I'd never heard of that had some rather tantalizing names. Uh, and it turns out that um, some various folks out there have figured out things that you can do with Fiddler for websites that really weren't expecting their HTTP traffic to be modified. Um, but the one, the most recent example, which just cracks me up, is if you search for uh, Fiddler and I think maybe Pet Store on YouTube, you'll find some videos of basically, and it's you know a background of I think Japanese techno pop, 
and there's no no spoken dialogue. But basically, what you see is um, someone constructing a rather complicated uh, fiddler setup where. Uh, they intercept traffic between, I think it's a Facebook game where you can buy things for your little virtual animals and so forth. And they basically uh, do an interception attack and they replace some of the game's content with their own content. And basically what this allows you to do is purchase things for your animal that aren't unlocked in the game. So your animal can wear like, you know, a Christmas hat in the middle of the summer, which ordinarily is impossible. And you know, <laughs> apparently there's a big market for this stuff where people just want to go toy with things and, and mess around with them. And, uh, you know, it's big enough that somebody bothered to record this four-minute YouTube video that has tons of views. Uh, and, you know, basically, I, of course, didn't really design it for this purpose, but, it, you know, it works fine. And, you know, occasionally someone will wander into the Fiddler forums and say, hey, the hack for, you know, pet shop isn't working. What's going on? And it's kind of like, yeah, we don't really know anything about what you're talking about. And, yeah. uh, you really need to go talk to whoever you taught you to do this thing that you're doing. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it is kind of fun to see uh, what people are doing with Fiddler. And, you know, hopefully people are, are being responsible. But, but obviously, you know, Fiddler is only one of many tools that allow you to get yourself in trouble if that's what you're looking for. Definitely. Always fun to use a tool where you can shoot yourself in the foot. Yep. That's how all the good tools work, actually. <laughs> but I, I'm fascinated that your career is largely driven by trying to make clip art work correctly. Uh, it's, it's, it's all about the clip art, man. Honestly, like, you know, I started in clip art, and the clip art side of things was working pretty well, and the browsers were the weak parts, and now I've come here. And, you know, people are constantly luring me to say, hey, come work on product, you know, website foo. It's really cool, and we're, we're going to be the next best thing. But honestly, you know, I work on IE for a reason. I think IE is... Uh, got the most opportunity to make the biggest difference in, you know, the, the user experience for a lot of things. And, you know, we've got tons of work to do and we're hard at work on the next version. And, uh, you know, I'll be here as, as long as, uh, as long as it's a great place to, to make progress. So, um, what, what else is catching your eye these days? Let's just take a, a 180 and look around. I'm, I'm installing windows seven on a friend's laptop right now that was formerly inhabited by XP Got a whole new hard drive. What do you think about Windows 7, and especially as far as the networking stack goes? Well, I mean, honestly, it's 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 an interesting thing. So I was I was never a big proponent of Vista, and now everybody's on the anti-Vista bandwagon. So I don't really want to you know spend too much time there. But uh, you know, until until Win 7's uh, betas came out, I was running XP, um, and not just any XP. I was running XP X64 edition, ah, really yeah. weird version that has no supported applications or drivers. You uh, and me both, my brother. <laughs> but uh, it was you know it's good fun to find out you know who who, who expects oh it's a 64-bit machine it must be Vista because you know yeah. there wasn't even an XP X64. But I was, was running it too. Um, but yeah, so I, I really like uh, Windows 7, and, and certainly the things that were uh, annoying to me about Vista have mostly been resolved, and you know, I think it's a great platform, and it's kind of funny, actually. I've got a machine that dual boots uh, Windows XP and uh, Windows 7, and it was kind of funny because you know, I installed Windows 7 uh, on this machine, and you know, I started surfing the net on it, and then you know, I looked down, and the network cable for the machine was sitting on top of the, on top of the desk, not plugged in. And I thought, this is, you know, impossible, clearly. Like, something crazy is going on, right? The machine is not plugged into the network, and I have network access. And I, I verified <laughs> in the back of the machine it wasn't plugged in. Uh. And it turns out, the story is, uh, Windows 7, while, while quite a great operating system, is not magical. 
several years ago, I had installed a wireless adapter in this machine. And, you know, of course, the wireless adapter had no X64 driver for XP. And so it was just disabled and off and, and so forth. And I totally forgot the thing was in the machine. But Win7 just, you know, did the normal install. It found the adapter, hooked everything up, made everything work. And, you know, I had network access without doing any work at all. And so that was, to me, you know, a great moment of like, wow, this, this Win7 thing has really got, got its stuff together. Um, so I think a lot of the things like driver compatibility and so forth are, are big wins for Win7. In terms of the network stack itself, it supports a bunch of things uh, in terms of some of the low-level stuff about making better use of the network and so forth that aren't available for XP. But for me, you know, some of the I'm a, I'm a security guy by, by trade, and so you know, some of the things that I like best are uh, there's support for enhanced versions of the transport layer security TLS that's used mm-hmm. in HTTPS, and so. You have versions 1.1 and 1.2 uh, for Windows 7. It supports things like TLS extensions um, that allow you to do virtual hosting of SSL and so forth. And some some pretty important security work has gone into the network stack and so forth. Well, I had this experience just now. Like I said, this was an old AMD uh, processor and uh, the the uh, HP Pavilion kind of thing. And it had an old IDE laptop hard drive, 100 gig. And so I I found that they still sell those. <laughs> That's amazing. But I got a 320 gig IDE drive. It was like 100 bucks, something like that. Plugged it in, installed Windows 7. It did its thing. I was thinking that it might choke, but it didn't, of course. And when it went to install updates, it just found the wireless adapter, like you said, and connected. When it went to install the updates, the first several updates were all the drivers for all the hardware in in the on the laptop. I didn't have to do any of that. And yeah. that's just awesome. I mean, what a difference, right? What a difference from any other Windows operating system or any other operating system. That 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 just works. Yeah, and it's great. And I've had I've had great results on, you know, older hardware and newer hardware as well, where in particular with the newer hardware, you know, XP just doesn't come with the stuff in the box. And no. So, uh, it's 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 definitely good to be uh, you know on both the, the latest operating system and I think one of the the best supported ones. Uh, but definitely, man, you know you gotta you gotta consider moving up to the solid state drives because that's where it's at. Yeah, I got one of those too. I mean, I'm sure Richard's got a lot of questions too about uh, or, or things he wants to talk about about Windows Seven, in particular the network stack, um, IP6. You know what's what's the story with IP6? I mean, are people really using this yet? Do they know they're are they using it and they don't even know it? Well, I, I think I think the answer is is that IPv6 isn't getting a ton of use uh, on you know the public internet as a whole, and so certainly you know there are uh, there are folks that are deeper down in the network stack that have probably better analysis and so forth about the trends and 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 so on. I mean, for for folks that aren't familiar, the whole idea uh, behind IPv6 is that we need additional address space. It turns out that um, the the address space provided by IPv4 isn't enough to address all of the devices and phones and everything else that's that's coming on to the public internet. And so, you know, essentially there was a projected date, you know, we're going to run out of IPv4 addresses, at which point, you know, the world gets a little hairy because you can't route traffic to machines as easily anymore. And uh, IPv6 resolved this by basically creating such a large increase in the address space. I think it's something like you could have one device on every square foot of the planet, uh, you know, one, you know, for a stack of like 100 feet high or something crazy, essentially just a ridiculous number of devices. Uh, and, and, you know, the biggest thing is the enhanced address space. But there's some other features as well uh, about, 
you know, kind of improving security and so forth around uh, the IPv6 stuff. You know, I'm not, <laughs> it's kind of ironic, you know, I'm, I'm definitely approaching the network stack from the top down. Uh, and, you know, for me, I don't actually typically go below the socket uh, in, in Fiddler. Um, and so there's folks that are, that are more familiar with, with those things. But, you know, typically a browser user isn't going to know when they're using IPv6. Uh, typically, if they're using IPv6 today, they're probably using it on uh, the, the intranet. So, you know, they're connecting to their domain controllers and connecting to their intranet sites and so forth using IPv6. And things on the public Internet typically aren't. But, you know, that's going to change over time. And I, I think VeriSign uh, is expected to uh, cut over uh, support for .com to, to IPv6 real soon now if they haven't already and things like that. Um, and so I think its, it's use is going to grow. It's uh, a security conference I was at. I think it was, a, it was one of the conferences I was at recently. They were trying to figure out ways to accelerate uh, uh, the transition to IPv6, and so basically, uh, one of the one of the proposals was, hey, you know, the only way that you can do this isn't by you know top level demand. You need grassroots demands. You need everybody to call their ISP and say, I want I, I want full IPv6 support and so forth. And so their plan was basically to uh, make a porn site that was only available via IPv6. Uh, and if you went there on IPv4, it would say, hey, call your call your ISP and complain. Uh. <laughs> and you couldn't see this content unless you were on IPv6. And, you know, I don't know whether or not they ever did it, but it was kind of funny, if uh, a little bit disturbing. A little disturbing. Uh, as a proposal. But, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, we're, we're starting to see actually a lot of moves at the network layer to resolve some of the long-standing limitations. Another great example is uh, international domain names. So using domain names uh, in, in, you know, that are contained characters other than just ASCII letters uh, and numbers and, and the hyphen. And for many years, essentially, the Internet, you know, you needed to use ASCII in order to navigate around and go between websites. And uh, with the introduction of international domain name support, essentially, you can use the full unit, well, almost full Unicode character set for naming sites. And so if you're in China, for instance, you could type a domain name entirely in Chinese. And this is a, you know, it's, it's in some respects a little thing, right? Because the computer savvy people are, are typically aware or use at least some amount of ASCII and so forth in their daily lives. But certainly I think we're going to increase the, the reach of the Internet and make it more accessible to folks if, you know, they can use their native character sets. And so a lot of these longstanding limitations you're starting to see, you know, fade away and new, new approaches and so forth are being layered on top. But the key thing about all of it is really maintaining compatibility. It's pretty easy to say, you know what, we're going to throw away HTTP because it doesn't work the way that we want. It's got all these problems. We're just going to create a new protocol. But of course, in practice, it just doesn't work very well because, you know, there's a huge installed base and there's tons of software that would have to be rewritten in order for that to work. And so most of what we're seeing now is very careful and clever engineering to engineer improved versions of protocols that coexist with the existing protocols and, and you know, a process of migration to allow seamless interoperability between those two. And so I think that, you know, that's going to be the trend that we see. Know, and, and, you know, the exceptions will be cases where there's just such a dominant uh, influence that you can just move everybody in one fell swoop. So if you look at a mobile provider, right, and you look at, you know, the iPhone, for instance, well, there's one iPhone, or, you know, several versions uh, over time, but there's one iPhone. And so if they decide, oh, well, we want all iPhones to have this particular behavior, they can basically push that out to those users pretty well. But for the Internet as a whole, if you try and drive that kind of thing, generally the Internet's going to kind of look at you and say, what, are you kidding? Like, the stuff works just fine, and, and you can't create that walled garden <laughs> for us. 
Well, isn't ultimately the the breaking point here for for IPv4 is when there's no more addresses to assign. I think Iana says 2012, we're out. There's no more addresses. I, I can see that motivating some ISPs. Is that before or after the world comes to an end, Richard? <laughs> I think it's just before, but it may be part of the ending. Yeah, that, the, the numbers have been pushed back. You know, the original numbers I saw, I think, were 2010. They were going to run out and so forth. But, yeah. I mean, essentially, it's it's like anything else. You can come up with some rather clever systems for, um, you know, kind of solving that problem. So you have things like network address translation and so forth where uh, you don't have universally routable IPs. You've got these private IP spaces that you can use whatever you want and so forth. But it becomes a very, a very complicated system because, well, how do you decide who gets how many IPs and so forth? And that's the problem that you have in IPv4 is deciding who gets what. And so, you know, somebody's going to run out before somebody else. And the question is, well, where do they get more? And the answer is there's no more to give. And so I think you're going to see, you know, there is going to be that push where essentially, hey, if we move to IPv6, we have a much simpler problem because addresses are essentially, you know, virtually infinite. They're virtually infinite. You know, the, the, there's stuff like Healer Packard owns an A class. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, these, because of the, you know, the early days of the internet, IPv4 was huge. And so they handed out these massive chunks of addresses that they don't really need. Right. And, and honestly, who would want it? Right. I mean, who needs that many addresses? Who, who, there's only, you know, at the time there were only, you know, and, and the class A, there weren't that many uh, companies that got assigned big blocks because if they get expensive, we could start trading them on eBay and, you know, have a separate little sub economy here. That's, going that's on right. Yeah. I, I actually think more like the, the carbon offsets, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Or, or, uh, coding horrors, bad code offsets, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. I can trade you, I'll trade you one IP address for, you know, this block of code or something. Yeah. But, well, especially when we talk about Healer Packard, I think they have to surrender their A class due to printer drivers alone. It's <laughs> yeah, <that's> number <laughs> yeah. of printer drivers. Certainly it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem and, you know, it's one that, that does need to get addressed. But, you know, I've, I've read various alarmist things like, oh, oh my goodness, the internet's not going to work. And, you know, then those get bubbled up to mainstream press that kind of corrupt the story a little bit further. And, you know, by the end of the day, my mom's like, uh, am I going to run out? Do I need to buy an IP address? And, you know, things like that. It comes in a spray can. <laughs> That's right. Just spray <laughs> Don't it get me some internet. And you're good to go. Um, so is there going to be a Fiddler 3? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, there's there's clearly going to be more Fiddlers. There's a lot of interest. Demand is higher than it's ever been. Uh, you know, there's a couple of, of challenges for Fiddler, uh, probably the most profound of which is, is that the bulk of Fiddler's code was written in nights and weekends uh, while I was single. And uh, right. I will be married in about two and a half months. Don't so, do it. Uh, <laughs> so, so there is that Don't component. do it. There's still time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because anytime, uh, anytime my fiance is, you know, uh, trying to get me out of the house, she's like, oh, go write Fiddler 3 or something. And, yeah. nice. you know, it's, it's kind of a joke. But, I mean, honestly, you know, one of the big things for me has been uh, stabilizing the core base of Fiddler and making the extensibility mechanisms, you know, better documented and better supported so that folks that want to innovate on top of Fiddler can go do that. And, you know, one of the things that was really a gating factor for a long time was that people wanted to do things with Fiddler that were just pretty incompatible with having this, this .NET WinForms UI. Either they wanted to completely replace the UI uh, with something that they'd written, or they wanted to do a very specialized thing. And so one of the most common things was they said, hey, we want to go integrate Fiddler with our test automation. But we really don't like having all this UI around, and we'd really prefer a command line version. And can you, can you do something about that? 
And so one of the big uh, announcements at the PDC, actually, was the release of what's called Fiddler Core. And Fiddler Core is a C-sharp class library that basically does all the core proxy functionality for Fiddler. So you can actually put Fiddler uh, into your application. And so, you know, if you want a console version of Fiddler, go write it. If you want to do a version of Fiddler that just logs traffic to a database and does nothing else, you can do that. And so Fiddler Core is going to be, I think, a pretty powerful uh, mechanism for allowing people to do really interesting things on top of Fiddler, uh, the core functionality, without actually carrying around, you know, the rest of the stuff that's that's, uh, not necessary for their application. That's great. Eric Lawrence has been our guest for the last hour. Uh, Fiddler is the product. You can go check it out. Eric, thank you very much for sharing that with us. Great talking to you guys. And thanks for writing such a cool product. Yeah, thanks. And we'll see you next time, dear listener. .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.